baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. This time on Vet Story. I tried to go into this um, the recruiting station and say I wanted to be in the infantry, but of course I was um, strongly denied. Um, I'd like to say that human intelligence more chose me. She and her husband had to leave Afghanistan during, um, during some of the first wars there, where her husband later died from injuries. I thought about them a lot during my, my second deployment as a member of a cultural support team. Uh, we technically weren't supposed to be on the front lines, but we were. Um, in fact, engaging with the enemy, um, it was constant. I have a combat action badge. Went from Colombia to Africa, or to, to West Africa, Liberia specifically. We start construction and everything is going great. I mean, well, as great as it can. A lot of the NGOs and companies are leaving out of fear. Um, you find out um, that you are going to be involved in everything. I want to make a smaller impact on a smaller group of people, but that, that will really change their lives. That's why I do what I do. Welcome to Vet Story. I'm your host, Phil Briggs. Now, since it's Labor Day weekend, we're going to look at one particular veteran that we first met this time last year. My colleague Jared Watson at ConnectingVets.com sat down with the Service Women's Action Network. There, he spoke with program associate Anna Stacy, and she introduced us to a fellow at the SWAN organization that we'll never forget, Sergeant Janice Marquez. She's been a Pashto language instructor and a human intelligence collector on the battlefields in Afghanistan. The program she worked in allowed special operators to engage people in the Afghan Pashtun society. She worked along ODAs, Operational Detachment Alphas, in the Kunar province of Afghanistan. She went on to help disadvantaged people in the jungles of South America. She became a fellow with the Service Women's Action Network, where she speaks on behalf of military women and advocates for the inclusion of women in combat-specific military occupational specialties. She's the regional director for Waves for Water, which is an all-veteran force of humanitarian workers who provide clean water access to the world's most remote populations. And she founded Stable Outcomes, which brings things like water, electricity, and essential needs to some of the most remote places around the world. To truly honor Labor Day weekend, we'll look at how the labor of this Army veteran has changed lives all over the planet. We'll go now to our colleague, Jared Watson, to get the full story. Tell us about your background, your military experience, and and why did you choose human intelligence? Um, I'd like to say that human intelligence more chose me. Oh. Um, so I joined the Army in 2005, and when I went to the recruiting station in uh, Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee, um, which is not where I was from, but that's where I was living at the time, I went into the station and I took my ASVAB, and I was super excited to join the infantry. And no kidding, I was so young and so naive. 
I tried to go into this um, the recruiting station and say I wanted to be in the infantry, and um, I, I felt like my scores were adequate and that I was adequate. But of course, I was um, strongly denied. <laughs> very much declined for this. But I didn't know any better, and of course, I was what maybe eighteen years old at the time, mm-hmm. and so. I, I guess next on my list was um, human intelligence, or I guess the top of their list. Oh, okay. At the time. <laughs> so it wasn't necessarily something that I had really chosen, but um, more something that I felt like I was um, equipped to do. The military put you where they needed you. Exactly. Well, um, as a cultural support team member, you interacted with women in Afghanistan. What was that like, and how important was that role to the overall mission? Well, I personally, as a woman, I do think it is very important. You are addressing half of the population that doesn't necessarily um, have a voice. Um, We're talking about a culture where women don't necessarily leave their homes. Um, Some of them may. There are parts of Afghanistan that are a bit more progressive, and women are allowed to leave and fetch water and even work, for that matter. However, in the regions in which I worked, we didn't see a lot of that. We saw a lot of... um, um, repression, um, and I remember speaking with many women who couldn't um, leave to go to um, the well to to pump water by themselves, and so they'd have to send their very young children out there. And so, those are kind of the things that um, I, I dealt in um, the most. I would say that um, when I first joined the army, I went with the 101st Airborne Division to Afghanistan. My first deployment. So during that deployment, I meet this woman, and she has this this super inspiring story. She's an interpreter. She's a Pashtun linguist. And she's really the reason why I re-enlisted during my first deployment during um, 2008, uh, 2007-2008. And uh, her story was that she and her husband had to leave Afghanistan during um, during some of the first wars there. And they, they fled through Pakistan, eventually made it to the United States where her husband later died from injuries sustained during um, during some sort of a, a kidnapping or whatever the attack was. I don't really recall anymore. But um, she said that her goal in life was to come back as a linguist to help the people that, that, that are a part of her bloodline, the people who have been so very near and dear to her most of her life and that she had to, to flee um, from in order to protect herself and her family. And uh, she, she asked me, she said... I told her that I might be re-enlisting and I have a slot at a language school. And she said, learn Pashtun. And uh, I did. Wow. I was going to ask you what kind of impact this stuff has on you, but clearly <laughs> that's impact. Yeah, on my young mind. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, so you, how do you just decide to learn Pashtun? I mean, how is that like, okay, I'm going to go do that now, and then you just did it? I mean, honestly, that process has got to be tough. Well, it is, and I, I can't necessarily take all of the credit for that. I would say that it was time for me to re-enlist, and um, there are benefits to re-enlistment when you're overseas. Like a, a lot of veterans know, you get um, there, there are several perks. And it was my time, and as one of the perks, the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California came up. And I selected it. And um, what they do when you get into the language school is they give you a list of um, needs of the Army languages. So these are the languages that you can take. And I think 
I don't remember most of them right now. I think there was maybe Russian, there was um, Urdu, Farsi, but then Pashtu was also on the list. And um, I think it, naturally I took it, uh, though I, I will say that I wanted Hebrew, but <laughs> Pashtu was definitely a close second. You speak more than that, though. You speak another language as well, don't you? I do. I speak Spanish and uh, I speak, I would, I would call myself an intermediate Portuguese speaker. In your head, how do words, how does this, I've always wondered, knowing multiple languages, how that works in your brain when you hear things. Do you reconvert them back into English? Do you just kind of mush all the languages together and just look at it like a vocabulary that you have? (laughs) Like all you're doing is extending your vocabulary? Yes. Well, uh, yes and no. Um, So it's it's almost like I have more than one word to describe each thing, but... um, when I'm transitioning from one language to another, like I can't go from Pashtu to Spanish or from Spanish to Portuguese. I have to go from English to one of those other languages, naturally because it's my, it's my mother tongue. Um, but kind of during this, this process, it, it's, if I'm relearning or if I'm refreshing on one, I make a lot of mistakes. So there will be a lot of Pashtu in my Spanish. Um, and if I forget <laughs> a word in Spanish, it'll come out in Portuguese or maybe English. And, yeah. And I won't recognize it, but other people will look at me like I have something growing out of my face, and so that's funny. That and that and that was honestly that's what I was wondering because I have another buddy who speaks multiple languages, and I haven't really had the chance to talk <laughs> to him much about that. Um, but so eventually, you decided that it was time for you to transition. Uh, how would how did that decision come about, and how was your transition? Um, I, absolutely, there was a. Uh, there was definitely a point where I had done everything of value that I could have possibly done during my military career. And so in a sense, I had peaked. I had um, reached that climax. And that was, that was kind of the decision. And at the same time, I wanted to get out. I wanted to go to school. Um, and I was starting a company. So these are all things that I had that I'd really thought about. And I thought about them a lot during my, my second deployment as a member of a cultural support team, um, knowing that the the greatest thing that I could have possibly done in the military, I had just done. And it was time. So I, um, after that deployment, I went back and taught language at the Defense Language Institute for um, a few months until I got out of the Army. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. to... Um, at the time, I thought it was just to go to school and to start my company, but um, school definitely fell by the wayside because business took precedence. Yeah, I, I've I've learned that a lot of entrepreneurs will tell you, forget school. If you're an entrepreneur and you want to start a business, then just start your business. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I would say that though education is very much necessary, it wasn't as important to what I was doing because it, through my military background, I had learned skills and practices um, that were definitely relevant to what I was doing in the business world. Tell us about your business. What's the name of it, and what exactly is it? Um, well, I'm actually not a part of that company anymore. I oh. I resigned as cool. of, what was it, early 2016. Okay. Um, and, and for a good reason. I feel like my company definitely got into an area where I wasn't necessarily an expert, we started doing uh, green energy in Africa, and though I think it is absolutely necessary and um, there are definitely stabilizing benefits to it, I'm not an expert in that, and I don't feel as comfortable going forward that way. 
Um, but the basic premise of the, the company was um, stability operations. So as cultural support team members, many of us conducted um, operations called village stability operations, where we go into an area and we try to restabilize whatever that looks like. Um, it is a very complex process. Uh, it has a lot to do with security and um, development. But the um, and I, I sat with a few people during that that last deployment. We really went through some ideas about how can we do this in the civilian sector. How do we do this outside of the military? How do we make a company out of it? And um, the the answer was we have no idea. And so when I when I started my company initially, I admit that I was a bit of an amateur. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I had the idea, the general concept. And um, eventually what we found ourselves doing was contracting a lot with the U.S. and Colombian militaries in Colombia in the demobilization and reintegration of the FARC with a lot of focus on um, the inclusion of female Colombian military and police to address the most basic needs of um, Colombian women living in FARC territories. It's rain season in the eastern jungles. The FARC rebels have called theirs for decades. From 1995, we lived through a continuous growth in the number of clashes, which reached its peak in 2011, when a bus bomb exploded, destroying half the town. But like others, now that a full peace deal between the Colombian state and the rebel group FARC seems to be at hand, she's tentatively trying to make her way back. It's almost, and tell me if I'm, if I don't, not that I'm trying to dumb it down, but to explain it on a, on a lower scale, but it's obviously my description is not going to be as broad, almost like event planning, but like permanent event planning. <laughs> like you have to work with everyone and have all of these different organizations, factions, people with their own ideas to basically listen to you to make this all work, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. That's mind-boggling. Yeah. So what are you doing now? Yeah, I guess it's the difficulty. Um, so now I'm a student at Norwich in the Strategic Studies and Defense Analysis Program, and I'm transitioning to a master's in international relations with a focus in development. Um, so school has really been my main focus, but um, my boyfriend and I are now starting another company uh, doing it, corporate social responsibility, because, of course, so a serial entrepreneur here. Um, but the idea is to do the same type of development um, in underserved countries within underserved populations by allowing larger companies to give back to the population. However that looks, however that manifests, every situation will be different, of course. But Are you the type of person that just sees problems wherever you go and decide, I want to figure out a way to fix these? And so that's you're just going to base your businesses on that for the rest <laughs> of your life? Pretty much. Um, I think I'm good at identifying the problem and saying this is the solution. But the good news is I, I don't feel like I implemented them very well, which is where my boyfriend comes in, um, finishing his MBA right now at uh, the University of Notre Dame. So he'll do all the hard stuff. I'll just do the, oh, you, I'll just do the easy part. What, what, would, what are the easy parts then? The identifying? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's easy to point out a problem. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely um, a little bit simpler to look at something and tell everybody what's wrong with it. Wow. Um, so let's go back to your transition. What, what was the hardest part of your transition, do you think? 
deciding that I actually wanted to get out, deciding that the benefits of being out of the military were far greater than being in the military. And by benefits, do you even, I, I take you as a person that wants to continue to find a way to serve and you want to find a better way to serve for yourself, that it's not about benefits for yourself necessarily, but it's the way you could benefit others, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I feel like my talents are are far different and they're they're much more effective outside of uh, the general bureaucracies that you run into in the military. Um, and then, too, there is the military makes a very large impact where it goes. And I feel like I want to make a smaller impact on a smaller group of people, but that that will really change their lives. For the better. What kind of impact uh, have you had that, that stands out in your mind uh, as a story that 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 continues to drive you today? I guess. Um. Well, well one in particular um, during the uh, the twenty fourteen twenty fifteen Ebola outbreak in West Africa, uh, it went from Colombia to Africa or to to West Africa, Liberia specifically to do the Ebola response and it was it was such an interesting experience because um, I we basically had one person on the ground there who was navigating all of this for us and then um, a few other members of the team went to Liberia to, to help solve this problem well it would the for those who have done disaster response it is very intricate and you don't go to a place and say I'm going to do one thing you find out um, that you are going to be involved in everything, especially in a place where a lot of the NGOs and companies are leaving out of fear. Um, now, my story in particular is more about what happened after. So they had very recently declared Ebola over in Liberia. And um, we got a project with um, USAID, uh, the United States Agency for International Development. And the project itself was to build or to construct green energy power plants in um, the rural community of Quendine, which was which was 14 hours on rough roads outside of Monrovia. So it was very difficult to get there, impossible to get there during rainy season, which was essentially half of the year. Um, so uh, we start construction and everything is going great. I mean, well, as great as it can, working in, in the middle of the jungles of West Africa. <clears throat> But um, the day that we actually turned the lights on, and we're talking a community that hasn't had electricity in uh, most of them ever. They've never really had electricity, but others who have who, who lost it during the wars, the first and second Liberian civil wars. Um, it was profound. It was absolutely profound to in- introduce this type of electricity to people who otherwise wouldn't have had a means and to, to experience the happiness and the celebration and, and to basically be a celebrity. And there were times when, and I, I was actually just talking to Anna about this, they they gave us a plot of land because we, I mean, I, I say that loosely, of course, there is no paperwork, there are no taxes. Um, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah. But there's definitely a lot of celebration in it. And at one point, a little girl named uh, Blessing comes up to me. And she wants to take a selfie. And so it's it's me and it's Blessing and another girl named Blessing and a little girl named Princess. And we all, we're all standing there taking selfies. And I show it to them. And I turn my phone around. And uh, Blessing looks at the, the picture on my iPhone. And, and she points to her 
herself. And she says, is that me? And I said, yes. And her, her tears are just welling in her eyes. And she says, I'm beautiful. And of course, at this point, I'm absolute disaster. I'm like, yes, you're beautiful. You're so beautiful. Oh my God. And so this, it was a really emotional moment for me to, to be able to, to see the differences in our cultures. And it's that reminder, that's why I do what I do. That's why I work in development. That's why I work with the underserved. What an amazing story. Wow. I was going to ask you, Anna, this is, you're making this difficult on me. I was going to ask you, how did you, how did you pick Janice, the profile? I uh, don't know. There's just, there's something about her. I'm not sure what it is. But. Tell, tell me a little bit more about this, the profile program you have and the goals of it and, and why you feel profiling women each month is so important. Absolutely. So I think that a lot of times when we talk about women veterans or women in the military, we can focus on you know, some of the very real struggles that, that these women face. And so I, I think what we want to do in profiling these women veterans is um, show, uh, you know, the ways that these women are able to accomplish just incredible things. And um, the obviously Janice is an amazing example of this. Um, and the way that these women have leveraged their experiences from the military, what they've learned and really made that transition into civilian life and into um, making an impact and found other ways, as you said, other ways to serve and to continue serving throughout their life. So I think we just we want to show women doing inspirational, incredible things um, in and out of the military. Do you feel, Janice, that, uh, that gender has been an issue in the past? I know we talked about the infantry issue. But any other areas where you feel like um, being recognized here can help with some prior issue that you had in the past where gender became an issue for you? Um, I can't necessarily say. I, I do feel that for the most part of my military career, I was very fortunate not to have had a lot of the struggles that other women um, with whom I have encountered um, that, that they've had. Um, but I will say this. Being a, a woman, um, to go back to the idea of, of cultural support teams, um, we are trained and attached to special operations units who are, who are working on, I guess, what you would call the front lines of combat. And so being, being there and having that direct combat experience um, was, was very profound. And that alone opened more doors for me than I could have possibly imagined and it would be things like um, Colombian generals wanting to have a meeting with me just to hear what it is like to be a woman on the front lines of combat now I know that that's kind of a contentious subject because uh, it's it technically wasn't a thing then Uh, we technically weren't supposed to be on the front lines but we were if we are saying that the front lines of combat are um, in fact engaging with the enemy um, I have a combat action badge my partner a veterinarian doctor also had a combat action badge. Um, it was it, it was constant, and because of those things, people um, they I, I have credibility. People listen to the things that I have to say because of the things that I have done, and uh, I've I've had meetings with people who think that I am important because of what I have done. And now, had I not had this experience, would I have had those same meetings? Would my business have been successful?
Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.